0: Welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the opening of America from 1815 all the way up to 1815. So, starting off with, after the War of 1812, our national market economy is going to develop unprecedentedly. So, as the United States is entering this new period of unprecedented economic expansion, the economy starts to become varied enough to grow without relying entirely on international trade. So before the war, if European countries suddenly stopped purchasing American commodities like tobacco and timber, then our domestic economy faltered. Since so many Americans remained very rural and primarily self-sufficient, they couldn't absorb any increase in goods produced by American manufacturers. But the War of 1812 marks an important turning point in the creation and expansion of a domestic market. First, the embargo, and then the war itself, stimulated manufacturing, especially in textiles. So The war also bottled up capital, like investment capital, in Europe. And when peace was restored, that capital then flowed into the United States to take advantage of new investment opportunities. And finally, the war experience led the federal government to adopt policies designed to spur on economic expansion. So, after war with Britain, leadership passes to a new generation of the republic. These are going to be younger men like Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, John Quincy Adams. Each of them are very ardent, eager nationalists that want to use federal power to promote development and increasingly dominant within the republican party they advocate the new nationalism a set of economic policies designed to help all regions prosper and bind the country more tightly together even james madison sees the need for increased federal activity given the problems the government experienced during the war the national bank had closed its doors in 1811 when its charter expired and the result was financial chaos with madison's approval congress in 1816 charters the Second Bank of the United States for a period of 20 years. Madison also agrees to a mildly protective tariff to aid young American industries by raising the price of competing foreign goods. Finally, Madison supported federal aid for internal improvements such as roads, canals, and bridges since the war had demonstrated how cumbersome it was to move troops or supplies over land. So the most important spur to American economic development after 1815 was the growing cotton trade. By the end of the 18th century, Southern planters had discovered that short fiber cotton would grow in the lower part of the South, but the cotton contained very sticky green seeds that can, can't really be easily separated from the lint by hand until a mechanical engine or cotton gin patented by E. L. Whitney was developed to do the job. So with a slave now able to clean 50 pounds of cotton a day compared with only one pound by hand, and with prices high on the world market, cotton production in the Lower South soared. By 1840, the South produced more than 60% of the world's supply, and cotton accounted for almost two-thirds for all American exports. As for the North, its factories increasingly made money by turning raw cotton into cloth, while Northern merchants reaped profits from shipping the cotton and then reshipping the the textiles. Planners use the income they earn to purchase foodstuffs from the West and goods and services from the Northeast. For a market economy to become truly national, a transportation network linking various parts of the nation is crucial. It's essential. The economy had not become self-sustaining earlier, partly because the only way to transport goods cheaply was by water. So trade was limited largely to coastal and international markets for even on rivers, bulky goods moved easily in only one direction, downstream. Canals attracted uh, considerable investment capital, especially after the success of the Erie Canal. Built between 1818 and 1825, the Erie Canal stretched 364 miles from Albany on the Hudson River to Buffalo on Lake Erie. So, what we see is after 1815, yeah, all of this is going to change. From 1825 to 1855, the span of a single generation, the cost of transportation on land falls 95%, while its speed increases fivefold. So, we see these new regions as a result that get drawn quickly into the market. And canals. Are really going to be attracting a lot of investment capital especially after erie canal looks so successful so its construction by the state was an act of faith for in 1816 the united states had only 100 miles of canals none longer than 28 miles but within a few years of opening the erie canal pays for itself it reduces the cost of shipping a ton of goods from buffalo to new york city From more than nineteen cents a mile to less than three cents. The canals wherever the canal's busy traffic was passing, settlers flocked, towns like Rochester and Lockport spring up and thrive by moving goods and serving markets, and we see the steady flow of goods eastward that gives New York City the dominant position in the scramble for control of the western trade. New York's commercial rivals like Philadelphia and Baltimore are soon frantically trying to build their own canals into the West. Western states like Ohio and Indiana, convinced that their prosperity depends on cheap transportation, construct canals to find interior or link interior regions with the Great Lakes. So by 1840, the nation will have completed. More than 3,300 miles of canals at a cost of around $125 million. And almost half of all of that amount comes from state governments. And because of its vast expanse, the United States depended especially on river transportation. But shipping goods downstream from Pittsburgh to New Orleans took about six weeks. The return journey required 17 weeks or more. Steamboats will reduce the time of an upstream trip from New Orleans to Louisville from 90 to eight days while cutting costs by 90%. And in 1807, Robert Fulton will demonstrate the commercial possibilities of propelling a boat with steam when his ship, the Claremont, travels from New York City to Albany on the Hudson River. But steamboats had the greatest effect on transportation on western rivers, where flat bottom boats could haul heavy loads, even in low water. The first significant railroads appear in the 1830s Largely as feeder lines to canals. Soon enough, cities and towns saw that their future depended on having good rail links. The country had only 13 miles of track in 1830, but 10 years later, railroad and canal mileage were almost exactly equal at 3,325 miles. By 1850, the nation had a total of 8,870 miles. Railroad rates were usually higher, but railroads were twice as fast as steamboats offer more direct routes and could operate year round. Although railroads increasingly dominated the transportation system after 1850, canals and steamboats were initially the key to creating a national market. What rail and steam engines did for transportation, Samuel F. B. Morse's telegraph did for communications. Morse in 1837 patented a device that sent electrical pulses over a wire. And before long, telegraph lines fanned out in all directions, linking various parts of the country in instantaneous communication. The new form of communication sped business information, helped link the transportation network and enabled newspapers to provide readers with up-to-date news. And indeed, the invention of the telegraph and the perfection of a power press in 1847 by Robert Ho and his son Richard revolutionized journalism. The mechanical press sharply increased the speed with which sheets could be printed over the old hand method and brought newspapers within economic reach of ordinary families. So Hose Press had a similar impact on book publishing since thousands of copies could be printed at affordable prices. So we're seeing this massive increase in technological innovation taking off in the early half of the 19th century. A national market economy depended on mass communications to transmit commercial information and bring into contact producers and sellers separated by great distances. And although postage was relatively expensive, the American postal system subsidized the distribution of newspapers and helped spread other forms of commercial information. Indeed, in the years before the Civil War, the postal system enjoyed more laborers than did any other enterprise in the country. And Although the system's primary purpose was to promote commerce, the system had a profound social impact by accustoming people to long-range and even impersonal communication. And When traveling in the U.S. in 1831, the French commentator Alexis de Tocqueville was amazed at the scope of the postal system. Although the British and French post offices handled a greater volume of mail, the American system was much more extensive, covered a greater area. The new forms of transportation had a remarkable effect on farm families. They became linked ever more tightly to a national market system. Given cheap transportation, farmers increased their output in order to sell the surplus at distant markets. In this shift towards commercial agriculture, farmers began cultivating more acres, working longer hours, and adopting scientific farming methods, including crop rotation and the use of manures as fertilizer. Instead of bartering goods with neighbors, they more often paid cash or depended on banks to extend them credit. Instead of marketing crops themselves, they began to rely on regional merchants. Like Southern planters, Western wheat farmers increasingly sold in a world market. As transportation and market networks connected more areas of the nation, they encouraged regional specialization. The South increasingly concentrated on staple crops for export, such as cotton, and the West grew foodstuffs particularly grain. Eastern farmers, unable to compete with the wheat yields of Western farms, shifted to producing fruits, vegetables, and dairy products for rapidly growing urban areas. The cities of the East no longer looked primarily to the sea for their trade. They looked to Southern and Western markets. That indeed was a revolution in markets. A national market system also needed a climate favorable to investment. Under the leadership of t Chief Justice John Marshall, the Supreme Court became the branch of the federal government most aggressive to protecting the new forms of business central to the growing market economy. And Marshall, who presided over the court from 1801 to 1835, convinced his colleagues to uphold the sanctity of private property and the power of the federal government to promote economic growth. In the case of McCulloch v. Maryland in 1819, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States. Just as Alexander Hamilton had argued in the debate over the first national bank, Marshall emphasized that the Constitution gave Congress the power to make all necessary and proper laws to carry out its delegated powers. If Congress believed that a bank would help it meet its responsibilities, such as maintaining the public credit and regulating the currency, then the bank was constitutional. By upholding Hamilton's doctrine of implied powers, Marshall enlarged federal power to an extraordinary degree. He also encouraged a more freewheeling commerce in Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824, which gave Marshall a chance to define the greatest power of the federal government in peacetime, the right to regulate interstate commerce. In striking down a steamboat monopoly granted by the state of New York, the Chief Justice gave the term commerce the broadest possible definition, declaring that it covered all commercial dealings and that Congress's power over interstate commerce could be exercised to its utmost extent. The result was increased business competition throughout society. At the heart of most commercial agreements were private contracts made between individuals or companies. Marshall took an active role in defining contract law, which was then in its infancy. The case of Fletcher v. Peck, 1810, showed how far he was willing to go to protect private property. The justices unanimously struck down a Georgia law that struck down a land grant to a group of speculators that had bribed the legislature to get it. A grant was a contract, Marshall declared, and since the Constitution forbade states to impair the obligation of contracts, the legislature could not interfere with the grant once it had been made. Although the framers of the Constitution probably meant contracts to refer only to agreements between private parties, Marshall made no distinction between public and private agreements, thereby greatly expanding the meaning of the contract clause. The most celebrated decision Marshall wrote on the contract clause was in Dartmouth College versus Woodward, decided in 1819. This case arose out of the attempt by New Hampshire to alter the college's charter of 1769. The court overturned the state law on the grounds that state charters were also contracts and could not be altered by later legislatures. By this ruling, Marshall intended to protect corporations, which conducted business under charters granted by individual states. Thus, the Marshall Court sought to encourage economic risk-taking by protecting property and contracts, by limiting state interference, and by creating a climate of business confidence. Between 1815 and 1850, the nation reverberated with some explosive energy. An emphasis on speed affected nearly every aspect of American life. Steamboat captains risked boiler explosions for the honor of having the fastest boat on the river, prompting the Visiting English novelist Charles Dickens to comment that traveling under these conditions seemed like taking up lodgings on the first floor of a powder mill. American technology emphasized speed over longevity as well. So, unlike European railroads, American railroads were lightweight, were hastily constructed, and paid little heed to the safety or comfort of passengers. Americans ate so quickly that one disgruntled European assisted food was like pitchforked down their throats. If the economic hallmark of this new order was the growth of a national market, there were social factors that also contributed to American restlessness. The American population continued to double about every 22 years, more than twice the rate of Great Britain. And The census, which stood at fewer than 4 million in 1790, surpassed 23 million in 1850. Although the birth rate peaked in 1800, it declined only slowly before 1840. And from 1790 to 1820, natural increase accounted for virtually all of the country's population growth, but immigration, which had been disrupted by the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, revived after 1815. In the 1830s, some 600,000 immigrants arrived, more than double the number in the quarter century after 1790. So the vast areas of land open for settlement absorbed much of this burgeoning population. Settlers were streaming west. Speculation in western lands reached frenzied proportions. Whereas only 68,000 acres of the public domain have been sold during the year 1800, sales peaked in 1818 at a staggering three and a half million acres. The Panic of 1819, which this was a nationwide economic panic, a recession of sorts, with sales and prices crashing, and in the depression that followed, many former Farmers lost their homes and farms. Congress reacted by abolishing credit sales of federal land and demanding payment in cash, but it tempered this policy by lowering the price of the cheapest lands to $1.25 an acre and reducing the minimum tract to 80 acres. Even so, speculators purchased most of the public lands sold, since there was no limit on the amount of acreage an individual or a land company could buy. And those land speculators played a leading role in settlement of the West. To hasten sales, they usually sold land partially on credit, a vital aid to poorer farmers. They also provided loans to purchase needed tools and supplies. Many farmers became speculators themselves, buying up property in the neighborhood and selling it to latecomers as a tidy profit. Given such rapid settlement, geographic mobility became one of the most striking characteristics of the American people. The 1850 census revealed that nearly half of all native-born free Americans lived outside the state where they had been born. The typical American has no root in the soil, visiting Frenchman Michel Chevalier observed, but is always in the mood to move on, always ready to start in the first steamer that comes along from the place where he had just now landed. So yeah, there's this constant urge to not necessarily settle down in one place, to seek out new land. And it was a search for opportunity more than anything else that accounted for such restlessness. In 1851, a new railroad line bypassed the village of Auburn, Illinois. Despite the village's handsome location, residents quickly abandoned it in order to live in the new town that sprang up around the depot, even though the land was swampier. A neighboring farmer purchased the old village and plowed up the streets, and Auburn reverted to a cornfield. Even with the growth of a national market, the United States remained a rural nation. Nevertheless, the four decades after 1820 witnessed the fastest rate of urbanization in American history. As a result, the ratio of farmers to city dwellers steadily dropped from 15 to one in 1800 to five and a half to one in 1850. Improved transportation, the declining productivity of many Eastern farms, the beginnings of industrialization, and the influx of immigration all stimulated the growth of cities. The most urbanized area of the country was the Northeast, where in 1860, more than a third of the population lived in cities. Important urban centers such as St. Louis and Cincinnati arose in the West. The South, with only 10% of its population living in cities, was the least urbanized region. So before. Before 1815, manufacturing had been done in homes or shops by skilled artisans. As master craft workers, they imparted the knowledge of their trades to apprentices and journeymen. This is someone who has served an apprenticeship in a trade or craft and is a qualified worker employed by another person. That's a journeyman. In addition, women often worked in their homes part-time under the putting-out system, making finished articles from raw materials supplied by merchant capitalists. After 15, 1815, this older form of manufacturing began to give way to factories with machinery tended by unskilled or semi-skilled laborers. From England came to many of the earliest technological innovations, but Americans improved on the British machines. From 1790 to 1860, the United States Patent Offices granted more patents than England and France combined. The first machines required highly skilled workers both to build and repair them. Eli Whitney had a better idea. Having won a contract to produce 10,000 rifles for the government, he developed machinery that would mass-produce parts that were interchangeable from rifle to rifle. Such parts had to be manufactured to rigid specifications, but once the process was perfected, these parts allowed a worker to assemble a rifle quickly with only a few tools. Simeon North applied the same principle to the production of clocks, and Chauncey Jerome followed Norris' example and soon surpassed him. The factory system originated in the Northeast where capital, water power, and transportation facilities were available. As in England, the production of cloth was the first manufacturing process to use the new technology on a large scale. Eventually, all the processes of manufacturing fabrics were brought together in a single location, and machines did virtually all the work. In 1820, a group of wealthy Boston merchants known as the Boston Associates set up operations at Lowell, Massachusetts, which soon became the nation's most famous center of textile manufacturing. Its founders intended to avoid the misery that surrounded English factories by combining paternalism with high profits. In paternalism, this is an attitude or policy of treating individuals or groups in a fatherly manner by providing for their needs without granting them rights or responsibilities. So instead of relying primarily on child labor or a permanent working class, the Lowell mills employed daughters of New England uh, farm families. Female workers lived in company boarding houses under the watchful eye of a matron. To its many visitors, Lowell presented an impressive site with huge factories and well-kept houses. Female workers were encouraged to attend lectures and use the library. They even published their own magazine, The Lowell Offering. The reality of factory life, however, involves strict work rules and long hours of tedious, repetitive work. At Lowell, for example, workers could be fined for lateness or misconduct, such as talking on the job, and the women's morals in the boarding houses were strictly guarded. Work typically began at 7 a.m. earlier in the summer, continued until 7 at night, 6 days a week. With only 30 minutes for the noon meal, many workers had to run to the boarding house and back to avoid being late. Winter was the lighting-up season, when work began before daylight and ended after dark. The only light after sunset came from a whale or lamps that filled the long rooms with smoke. Although the labor was hard, the female operators earned from $2.40 to $3.20 a week, wages considered good by the standards of the time. Domestic servants and seamstresses were paid less than a dollar a week. The average mill girl was between 16 and 30 years old, Most were not working to support their families back home on the farm. Instead, they wanted to accumulate some money for perhaps the first time in their lives and sample some of life's pleasures. The majority stayed no more than five years before getting married. The sense of sisterhood that united women in the boarding houses made it easier for farm daughters to adjust to the stress and regimen the factory imposed on them. As competition in the textile industry intensified, factory managers tried to raise productivity in the mid-1830s the mills began to increase the workloads and speed up the machinery even these changes failed to maintain previous profits and on several occasions factories cut wages the ever quickening pace of work finally provoked resistance among the women in the mills several times in the 1830s wage cuts sparked strikes in which a minority of workers walked out in the 1840s workers protests focused on the demand for a 10-hour day As the mills expanded a smaller proportion of the workers lived in company boarding houses and more regulations were relaxed but the greatest change was a shift in the workforce from native-born females to irish immigrants including men and children the irish who made up only eight percent of the lowell workforce by 1845 amounted to almost half by 1860. desperately poor and eager for any work they did not view their situation as temporary wages continue to decline and we see a permanent working class taking shape. So Lowell was a city built on water power. Early settlers had used the power of the Merrimack River to run mills, but never on the scale of the textile factories. So as the market spread, Americans came to link progress with the fullest use of the environment's natural resources. By 1836, Lowell had seven canals with a supporting network of locks and dams to govern the Merrimack's flow and distribute water to the city's 26 mills. As more and more mills were built at both Lowell and other sites, the Boston Associates erected dams at several points along the river to store water and divert it into power canals for factories. At Lawrence, they constructed the largest dam in the world at the time, a 32-foot high granite structure that spanned 1,600 feet across the river. But even dammed, the Merrimack's waters proved insufficient. So the Associates gained control of over 100 square miles of New Hampshire lakes that fed the river system. Damming these lakes provided a regular flow of water, especially in the drier summer months. By regulating the river's waters, the Associates made the Merrimack Valley the nation's greatest industrial center in the first half of the 19th century. But not all who lived there benefited. By raising water levels, the dams flooded farmlands, blocked the transportation of logs downstream for the timber industry, damaged mills upstream by reducing the current. These dams also devastated the fish population by preventing upstream spawning, but while factories routinely dumped their waste into the river to be carried downstream, eventually contaminating water supplies, epidemics of typhoid, cholera, and dysentery increased, so that by mid-century, Lowell had a reputation as being a particularly unhealthy city. The creation of an industrial labor force that was accustomed to working in factories did not occur easily. Previously, artisans had worked within the home, apprentices were considered part of the family, and masters were responsible not only for teaching their apprentice a trade, but also for providing them some education and for supervising their moral behavior. Journeymen knew that if they perfected their skill, they could become respected master artisans with their own shops. And skilled artisans worked not by the clock but at a steady pace, rather in bursts of intense labor alternating with greater leisure." It's kind of like, you know, when the creative genius bug strikes you, you have to seize it, but eventually that will kind of wane, right? But the factory changed that. Factory goods were not so finished or elegant as those done by hand. Pride and artisanship gave way to rates of productivity. At the same time, workers were required to discard old habits because industrialism demanded a worker who was sober, sober, dependable, self-disciplined. Absenteeism, lateness, and drunkenness hurt productivity and disrupted the regular factory routine. Thus, industrialization not only produced a fundamental change in the way work was organized, but also transformed the very nature of work. With the loss of personal freedom also came the loss of standing in the community. The master apprentice relationship gave way to factory sharp separation of workers from management few workers rose through the ranks to supervisory positions and even fewer could set up their own business as many artisans dreamed of even well-paid workers since their decline in status in this newly emerging economic order workers sometimes organized to protect their rights and traditional ways of life craft workers such as carpenters printers and tailors formed unions, and in 1834, individual unions came together in the National Trades Union. Union leaders argued that labor was degraded in America. Workers endured long hours, low pay, and low status. Unlike most Americans, social thinkers of the day, they accepted the idea of conflict between different classes. They did not believe that the interests of of workers and employers could be reconciled, and they blamed the plight of labor on monopolies, especially banking and paper money, and on machines and the factory system. If the union's rhetoric sounded radical, the solutions they proposed were moderate. Reformers agitated for public education, abolition of imprisonment for debt, political action by workers, effective unions as the means to guarantee social equality and restore labor to its former honor position. Proclaiming the Republican virtues of freedom and equality, they attacked social privilege, denounced the lack of equal opportunity, and decried workers' loss of independence. The labor movement gathered some momentum in the decade before the Panic of 1837, but in the Depression that followed, labor strength collapsed. During hard times, few workers were willing to strike or engage in collective action, Nor did skilled craft workers who spearheaded the union movement feel a particularly strong bond with semi-skilled factory workers and unskilled laborers. More than a decade of agitation uh, did finally win the 10-hour day for some workers by the 1850s, and the courts also recognized workers' rights to strike, but these gains had little immediate impact. Workers were united in resenting the industrial system and the loss of status but they were divided by ethnic and racial antagonisms, gender, conflicting religious perspectives, occupational differences, party loyalties, and disagreements over tactics. For them, the factory and industrialism were not agents of opportunity, but reminders of their loss of independence and a measure of control over their lives. Some fought against the loss of independence in unusual ways. The waterfalls that served as a magnet for capitalists building mills also attracted their workers. Such cascades were places to visit during off hours to picnic, swim, fish, or laze about. And for those with the nerve, the falls provided a place to show off skills in a different way. Every mill town had its waterfall jumpers, with their own technique to survive the plunge knees bent, chest thrust forward. No jumper won more fame than Sam Patch, a young man who had begun working at the Pawtucket Mills at the age of seven. Patch gained wider attention when he jumped at Passaic Falls, New Jersey, where a mill owner was opening a private park that charged admission in order to keep away the lazy, idle, rascally, and lower-class riffraff. Workers who resented this undemocratic practice rejoiced when Patch spoiled the park's opening by leaping 70 feet into the foaming water. Thousands of ordinary folk cheered him from outside the park. Eventually, Patch's daring led him to the biggest challenge of all, niagara falls twice he leapt more than 80 feet into the cascades churning waters but he drowned a month later when he dared genesee falls in another mill town along the erie canal rochester new york still his fame persisted for decades leaping waterfalls was an art which i have knowledge of and courage to perform he once declared defiantly in a market economy where skilled arts were being replaced by machine labor Sandpatch's acts were a defiant protest against the changing times. Found entertainment in a variety of ways, right? Thousands of miles beyond Lowell's factory gates, a different class of Americans roamed who at first appeared unconnected to the bustle of urban markets. These were the legendary mountain men who flourished from the mid-1820s through the mid-1840s. Traveling across the Great Plains, along upland streams, and over the passes of the Rockies, outdoorsmen such as Jim Bridger, Jedediah Smith, and James Walker wore buckskin hunting shirts, let their hair grow to their shoulders, and stuck pistols and tomahawks in their belts. Wild and exotic, the mountain men became romantic symbols of the American quest for individual freedom. Yet, these wanderers, too, were tied to the emerging market society. The mountain men hunted beaver pelts and shipped the meese to be turned into fancy hats for gentlemen. The fur trade was not a sporting event but a business, dominated by organizations such as John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company, and the trapper was the agent of an economic structure that stretched from the mountains to eastern cities and even to Europe. Most of these men went into the wilderness not to flee civilization but to make money. Of those who survived the fur trade, most returned and took up respectable new careers as shopkeepers, traders, ranchers, politicians, and even bankers. They, like farmers, were expectant capitalists for whom the West was a land of opportunity. The revolution of markets, in other words, affected Americans from all walks of life. Mountain men as well as merchants, laborers as well as farmers. Equally critical, it restructured American society as a whole. To begin with, the spread of the market produced greater specialization. Transportation networks made it possible for farmers to concentrate on producing certain crops, while factories could focus on making a single item such as cloth or shoes. Within factories, the division of labor meant that the process of manufacturing an item became more specialized, broken down into less skilled tasks. This process evolved at different rates. Textiles and milling were completely mechanized, while other sectors of the economy, such as shoes and men's clothing, depended little on machinery. Moreover, large factories were the exception rather than the rule. Still, the tendency was toward more technology, greater efficiency, and increasing specialization. Specialization had consequences at home as well as in the workplace. The average 18th century American woman produced items such as thread, cloth, clothing, and candles and the home for family use. As factories spread, however, household manufacturing all but disappeared, and women lost many of the economic functions they had previously performed in the family union. Again, textiles are a striking example. Between 1815 and 1860, the price of cotton cloth fell from 18 to 2 cents a yard. And because it was also smoother and more brightly colored than homespun, most women purchased cloth rather than making it themselves. Similarly, the development of ready-made women's, men's clothing sorry, reduced the amount of sewing women did, especially in urban centers. European visitors were struck during these years by how much Americans were preoccupied with material goods. The Jewish generation did not invent materialism, but the spread of the market after 1815 made it much more evident. In a nation that had no legally recognized aristocracy, no established church and class lines that were only informally drawn, wealth became the most obvious symbol of status. Materialism reflected more than a desire for goods and physical comfort. It represented a quest for respect and recognition. The esteem of the founding generation for intellectual achievement was mostly lost in the scramble for wealth that seemed to consume this new generation. In the years after 1815, a new middle class took shape in American society. A small class of shopkeepers, professionals, and master artisans had existed earlier, but the creation of a national market economy greatly expanded its size and influence. As specialization increased, office work and selling were more often physically separated from the production and handling of merchandise. Business people, professionals, storekeepers, clerks, office workers, and supervisors began to think of themselves as a distinct social group. Members of the growing middle class had access to more education and enjoyed greater social mobility. They were paid not only more, but differently. A manual worker might earn $300 a year, paid as wages computed on an hourly basis. Professionals received a yearly salary and might make $1,000 a year year or more. Middle-class neighborhoods segregated along income and occupational lines also began to develop in towns and cities. In larger cities, improved transportation enabled middle-class residents to move to surrounding suburbs and commute to work. Leisure also became segregated as separate working-class and middle-class social organizations and institutions emerged. As middle-class Americans accumulated greater wealth, they were able to consume more. Thus, material goods became emblems of success and status, as clockmaker Chauncey Jerome sadly discovered when his business failed and his wealth vanished. Indeed, this materialistic ethos was most apparent in the middle class as they strove to set themselves apart from other groups in society. Furthermore, as American society became more specialized after 1815, greater extremes of wealth appeared. As the new markets created fortunes for the few, the factory system lowered the wages of workers by dividing labor into smaller, less skilled tasks. At the upper end of the social scale, wealth was most highly concentrated in large eastern cities and in the cotton kingdom of the south. Still, Throughout the nation, the tendency was for the rich to get richer and own a larger share of the community's total wealth. By 1860, 5% of American families owned more than 50% of the nation's wealth. In villages where the market revolution had not penetrated, wealth tended to be less concentrated. In a market society, the rich were able to build up their assets because those with capital were in a position to increase it dramatically by taking advantage of new investment opportunities. Although a few men such as Cornelius Vanderbilt and John Jacob Astor vaulted from the bottom ranks of society to the top, most of the nation's richest individuals came from wealthy families. The existence of great fortunes is not necessarily inconsistent with the idea of social mobility or property accumulation. Although the gap between the rich and the poor widened after 1820, even the incomes of the most poor Americans rose because the total amount of wealth produced in America had become much larger. From about 1825 to 1860, the average per capita income almost doubled to $300. Voicing the popular belief, a New York judge proclaimed, in this favored land of liberty, the road to advancement is open to all. Social mobility existed in these years, but not as much as contemporaries boasted. Most laborers, or more often their sons, did manage to move up the social ladder, but only a rung or two. Few unskilled workers rose higher than to a semi-skilled occupation. Even the children of skilled workers normally did not escape the laboring classes to enter the middle class ranks of clerks, managers, or lawyers. For most workers, improved status came in the form of a savings account or homeownership which gave them some security during economic downswings and in old age. It was no accident that Chauncey Jerome's clocks spread throughout the nation along with the market economy. The new methods of doing business involved a new and stricter sense of time. Factory life necessitated a more regimented schedule, where work began at the sound of a bell, workers kept machines going at a constant pace, and the day was divided into hours and even minutes. Clocks began to invade private as well as public space, with mass production, ordinary families could now afford clocks, and even farmers became more sensitive to time as they were integrated into the market. As Americans watched their nation's frontiers expand and its market economy grow, many began to view history in terms of continuous improvement. The path of commerce, however, was not steadily upward. Rather, it advanced in a series of wrenching boom and bust cycles, accelerating growth followed by a crash and then depression. The country remained extraordinarily prosperous from 1815 until 1819, only to sink into a depression that lasted from 1819 to 1823. During the next cycle, the economy expanded slowly during the 1820s, followed by frenzied speculation in the 1830s. Then came the inevitable contraction in 1837, and the country suffered an even more severe depression from 1839 to 1843. The third cycle followed the same pattern. Gradual economic growth during the 1840s, frantic expansion in the 1850s, and a third depression, which began in 1857 and lasted until the Civil War. In each of these panics, thousands of workers were thrown out of work. Overextended farmers lost their farms, and many businesses closed their doors. In such an environment, prosperity and personal success seemed all too fleeting. Because Americans believed the good times would not last, that the bubble would burst and another panic set in, their optimism was often tinged by insecurity and anxiety. They knew too many individuals like Chauncey Jerome who had been rich and then lost all their wealth in a downturn. The initial shock of this boom and bust psychology came with the Panic of 1819, the first major depression in the nation's history. From 1815 to 1818, cotton had commanded truly fabulous prices on the Liverpool market, over in Britain. In this heady prosperity, the federal government extended liberal credit for land purchases, and the new national bank encouraged merchants and farmers to borrow in order to catch the rising tide. But in 1819, the price of cotton collapsed and took the rest of the economy with it. Once the inflationary bubble burst, land values, which had been driven to new heights by the speculative fever, plummeted 50-75% to almost overnight. As the economy went slack, so did the demand for Western foodstuffs and Eastern manufactured goods and services, pushing the nation into a severe depression. Because the market economy had spread to new areas, the downturn affected not only city folk, but rural Americans as well. New cotton planters in the Southwest, who were most vulnerable to the ups and downs of the world market, were especially hard hit. As depression spread in the years following 1819, most Americans could not guess that the ups and downs of the boom and bust cycle would continue through the next three decades, their swings made sharper by the growing networks of the market economy, both nationally and internationally. But the interconnections between buyers and sellers did feed both prosperity and panic. Farmers and factories specialized in order to sell goods to distant buyers. Canals and railroads widened the network, speeding products and information and profits. And as markets tied distant lands more tightly together, international events contributed to the business cycle. It was the Liverpool market in England, in fact, that bid the price of American cotton to its high at over 32 cents. Then in 1816, 1817, English textile manufacturers looking for cheaper cotton, began to import more cotton from India, plummeting the price of New Orleans cotton to 14 cents. Broader changes also hurt American markets. The French and the British have been at war with each other for decades, more than a hundred years, if the imperial wars of the 17th and 18th centuries were counted. In 1814 and 1815, the major powers of Europe hammered out a peace at the Congress of Vienna, one that lasted with only minor interruptions until the coming of World War I in 1914. When Europe had been at war, American farmers have found a ready market abroad, with thousands of European soldiers returning to their usual work as farmers' demand for American goods, dropped. The stresses of the Panic of 1819 shook the political system at home, too. As the Depression deepened and hardships spread, Americans view government policies as at least partly to blame. The post-war nationalism, after all, had been based on the belief that government should stimulate economic development through a national bank and protective tariff, by improving transportation, and by opening up new lands. As Americans struggled to make sense of their new economic order, they looked to take more direct control of the government that was so actively shaping their lives. During the 1820s, the popular response to the market and the Panic of 1819 produced a strikingly new kind of politics in the Republic. Alright, so just to summarize and kind of recap all the high points of the podcast here, the federal government promoted creation of a market through protective tariff, national bank, and internal improvements infrastructure. The development of new forms of transportation, including canals, steamboats, eventually railroads, allowed the goods to be transported cheaply on land. The Supreme Court, they adopted a pro-business stance that encouraged investment and risk-taking. Economic expansion generated greater national wealth, but it also brought social and intellectual change. Americans were pursuing opportunity, embracing new concept of progress, viewed change as normal, developed strong materialist ethic, Considered wealth the primary means to determine their status. Entrepreneurs reorganized their operations to increase production and sell in a wider market. The earliest factories were built to serve the textile industry. Don't forget that. First laborers in them were young women from rural farm families. Factory work imposed on workers, a new discipline based on time and strict routine. Workers' declining status led them to form unions and resort to strikes, but the Depression that began in 1837 destroyed those organizations. The new market economy distributed wealth much more unevenly and left Americans feeling alternatively buoyant and anxious about their social and economic status. Social mobility existed, but it was more limited than popular belief claimed. The economy lurched up and down with the boom and bust cycle. And when hard times hit, Americans were looking to the government to relieve economic distress. So that is the end of this podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more to come on the American History Podcast. See ya.